Welcome back to the show. As you heard on your news there, Bo and Ma at a news conference there just a few m- moments ago responding to this uh, story about the leaked audio tape and the sexual comments made about her at that liberal roast. Uh, here she is calling out Andrew Wilkinson, the liberal leader, Bo and Ma, just a few minutes ago. I think Andrew Wilkinson has a lot to answer for in terms of what he ha- feels is acceptable within his caucus. And I question whether a man who is unable to set the tone of his political party in terms of respect for women is able to set a tone for British Columbians. Okay, we'll see if Wilkinson says anything today. We're told by the party that he's got an off day from the campaign trail today as he prepares for the televised leaders debate, which is tomorrow night. All right, let's uh, gather our political panel now. We've got strategists for each party. Bill Thielman for the NDP. Bill, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Caroline Elliott on the line from the Liberal Party. Hi, Caroline. Good to be here. Good morning. And Yanina Campbell is the Executive Director of the BC Green Party. Good morning, Yanina. Good morning. Okay. Jane Thornthway, the BC Liberal candidate running for re-election in the North Shore, a lot of this story centers on her with her comments, of course, on that tape. She apologized yesterday. Let's have a little listen to her apology. My uh, remarks at the roast, and it was a roast, we were supposed to be making fun of Ralph Saltan, that was the whole intent. Um, The intent was to to be funny, and in retrospect, obviously, it fell flat, and I apologize for that. I have reached out to Bowen. I uh, did leave a message on her voicemail, she didn't pick up, but I also gave her an apology as well, and obviously, I've got to do better. We'll see how big of an issue this is going forward here today. Caroline, let me start with you with this uh, story, which is obviously an uncomfortable one for and a bad one for the Liberal Party. You just heard uh, Jane Thornthwaite's apology there. Is that where it ends, or do you think this continues to be a problem? Well, time will tell. But, uh, I mean, let's talk about what this is and, and what it isn't, from, from my perspective at least. And, and what yeah. it is, is it's an attempt at humor that was obviously clearly inappropriate and for which that person has apologized unreservedly. Uh, those are the words that she used on Twitter yesterday. Uh, but what it isn't, and, and I feel quite strongly about this, is it is not an indication of some kind of, you know, anti-woman culture prevailing in the B.C. Liberal Party. I mean, let's look at, at their record, right? The B.C. Liberals' most recent leader was a female. Uh, the party membership trusted her in a leadership race where the stakes were so high that whoever became leader would become premier at that same moment. So uh, they elected Christy Clark as members uh, in a leadership race to take on the premiership. And you can contrast that with the NDP, who, who infamously ousted their own female leader, uh, Carol James, after she increased both their seat count and their popular vote in the 2009 election. Uh, that's the same NDP who, despite all their talk, uh, disavowed their own equity mandate to push aside a capable Indigenous woman to allow a white guy to run. Um, and, you know, from a personal perspective, I guess, I mean, I've been a member of the BC Liberal Party since I was probably 20 years old. And in the, in the decade and a half since I joined up, uh, I felt nothing uh, personally but valued and respected, not just as a woman, but as a, as a person whose gender, frankly, shouldn't even be relevant. So what I'd like is if we could all stop talking about how we as women must be feeling so sensitive, you know, clutching our pearls about, uh, you know, a, a clearly inappropriate joke. And I don't make apologies for that. Uh, that should not have been made and that has been rightly apologized for. But let's yeah. start talking about the issues because as a woman and a mom of two young kids, that's what I'm interested in. Okay, well, let me go to the other woman on the panel here. Yanina Campbell is executive director of the Green Party. Yanina, your thoughts on it? Yeah, I, you know, when I watched that, I, I have to, I personally felt it quite offensive. Um, I think one of the parts, you know, I did feel that it was sexist and racist. And I think what I felt most of all was the, the, the laughter after comments made by Jane and what that reflected and referred to. Um, you know, I'm a woman in politics and I have two daughters and it just left me with a, th- a sense of like, we're still, you know, I, I know that um, Caroline makes a point about respecting women in politics, and that's true. Women have broken through a lot of uh, barriers to be where we are, but there is still a sense of these issues, you know, whether you're wearing the right clothes, do you have too much makeup on, um, how you act, and there are those times where women come up against this. So I do think it's an issue, though, more broadly for the Liberals in terms of, uh, the decisions they're willing to make on things like this in terms of appealing to the far right in the party, the social conservative side. I mean, if you look at Lori Thronis from 
um, the, you know, over the issues around um, conversion therapy. And, you know, I know Mr. Wilkinson has come out and said things like, we don't stand for homophobia or transphobia. And yet, we don't stand for sexism and racism, and yet decisions that are not being made around, you know, calling out their MLAs or or in Lori Thornis, like, why is he even yeah. running when the party doesn't stand for those things? Okay, I guess we're getting into some other issues there, but, you know, when you say it's racist, how do you think it was racist? I didn't hear anything specifically racist there. Well, I mean, I think that women who are from minoritized uh, uh, groups tend to feel these things more than uh, women that come from more of a privileged place like myself. And so it's oh. possible that that's the case in, with Bowen Ma. It wasn't direct racism. It was just more that maybe that it was something that because a woman comes from a minoritized group, that that is yeah. possibly more likely that that would be her experience. Okay, yeah, Bowen Ma's uh, Taiwanese descent. Bill Thielman for the NDP, your thoughts? Well, I think it's it's pretty sad, Mike. I, I think that's the case. And it, it's also kind of sad to try and, you know, deflect, deflect this into something that's completely unrelated in terms of the NDP. But, um, look, 69% of the BC Liberal slate is made up of men. Uh, we could see an old boys network there having having a laugh at this. It's, it's also sad that... It, it was a woman, Jane Thornthwaite, making the the bad remarks about Bowen Ma, and it shows how you know how much further we have to go to encourage women uh, and other folks to get into politics. I mean, we've got a liberal candidate, uh, Margaret Kunst in Langley East, who um, I think the party uh, misled about her reasons. I mean, she's clearly extremely uncomfortable supporting or opposed to uh, uncomfortable supporting. Uh, lesbian, gay, and you know, transsexual. She, she was the um, she was the liberal candidate who voted Inish, against that voted Inish against Ryan, a rainbow yeah, a, a rainbow yeah, a, crosswalk. Yeah, and as a as, yeah. city, as a city councilor, and then the part the, the liberals first of all came out and said, well, it was a process issue, and then it was discovered that she'd actually campaigned on that when she ran for city council, she would oppose it. So I don't think it's a process issue. Uh, the, the apology that Carolyn talked about had to be dragged out of both Jane Thornthwaite and the liberal leader only after several rounds of uh, uh, social media criticism. It wasn't something that they immediately did. And this whole thing happened a month ago or uh, several weeks ago. Um, there, there was no expression of regret until they got caught. So, uh, you know, I, I just think it's kind of sad. And I think on the political um, uh, circumstances situation, this means the liberals are talking about their own bad behavior for uh, yeah. two, three days now, instead of talking about their message. And that's in politics, that's quite deadly. Yeah, it's an unforced error. Another one here. But Caroline, how do you respond? <clears throat> Caroline Elliott. Do we have her? It was, uh, oh. It's my turn to be on mute this time. Sorry about yeah, that. Okay, yeah, um, go ahead. I was going to say, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, Bill's not wrong that this is uh, distracting from the issues, and it's unfortunate that it is. And it is. I mean, it's an unforced error, and, uh, and, and you know, I wish it wasn't the case. But, again, I think when you're trying to paint a narrative, as is, as is being painted all over the walls of Twitter right now, that this is somehow indicative of, of an anti-woman culture in the BC Liberal Party. That is simply not the case. As a member of the party, as somebody who's worked for the party, as somebody who's worked in government, um, uh, as you know, as a political advisor under that party, I can tell you I've never been treated with anything but, but respect as a woman. And I, uh, I was proud to see the BC Liberals uh, have the first uh, premier of BC actually elected as a woman, uh, Christy Clark. And so I, yeah. I really, I find it just so rich as the NDP are blocking Indigenous women from taking part in, in, uh, in uh, a political candidacy in this election uh, in favor of a white male, that they can even be talking about this. It's all well and good to have an equity mandate. It's all well and good to say that you really care about women and that you respect them. But when it actually, when boots hit the ground in terms of a, um, of an actual political race or something that really is meaningful in that regard, uh, there, there, it's more words than action on their part. Okay, Bill Teal. What do you say to that? You know, I've had two separate young liberal women send me private messages saying how appalled they are by this. I, I don't think there's any question that the whole thing was appalling. And, and Carolyn's job is to try and change the channel. And I'm sure Andrew Wilkins's job will be to try and change the channel. I, you know, I, I just think uh, everyone pretty much agrees it's a very regrettable incident. And it was done. And I think it's, as you pointed out, Mike, Ralph Sultan and, and Bowen Ma have a nice friendly cross-partisan relationship yeah, and, friends, and, this yeah. is, and this has turned it into uh, something really um you know sad uh, i guess 
because of the way it was used by, by Jane Thornthwaite to make okay. sexual innuendos about it. Okay, Yonita Campbell from the Green Party, just a, a brief comment for from you before we go to a break, but one of the things that occurs to me as, as I listen to Carolyn pointing out that the, the former liberal leader was a, a woman, of course, Christy Clark. You know, Christy Clark put up with a lot of this crap too, and mm-hmm. she was quite open about it, and that's the thing that makes me makes me a little surprised that the liberals are not more sensitive to this and that something like this could could happen given the fact that their own leader was subjected to this kind of stuff for years and talked openly about it and and yet you know we still see these kind of attitudes behind the scenes but anyway your thoughts Yanina yeah yeah and I you know I think that women in politics and we've seen this at the federal level as well with uh, and and Chrissy Clark talking about it and I think if there's something that comes out of this is that women and people supporting women in politics raise their voices and just say, you know, this is not something we can tolerate. We need to make safe places for all people to be uh, in politics. But, uh, right. you know, we have a female leader in the Greens as well, and we need to right. do everything we can to make that a safe place. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue with our BC election panel, Bill Thielman, Caroline Elliott, Yonina Campbell, all the three major parties represented here. Tomorrow night is the televised leaders' debate. The moderator is pollster Shachi Curl, frequent guest here on the show. Here's Shachi in an earlier appearance on the show talking about tomorrow night's debate. If it's a win for one of the leaders, the pundits can decide on that. Right. I want to be it to win a win. I want it to be a win for voters, Mike, yeah. who can watch and listen and actually glean something about their position. Okay, Shachi Curl, here she is speaking about the uh, how the the American presidential debate <laughs> was so nasty uh, a few a couple of weeks back and how she thinks she doesn't expect the same thing tomorrow night here in BC. Shachi Curl. I I right. watched Tuesday evening uh, with Chris Wallace, same as many people did. And, and I, I will tell you, Mike, very honestly, I had a holy crap, what have I just said yes to moment. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> play for me, people. Okay, I don't think it'll get that nasty tomorrow night. Caroline Elliott for the Liberal Party. This debate tomorrow night seems to be crucial with the Liberals uh, apparently, apparently running behind here in every poll that's come out. Your thoughts on this debate tomorrow? Well, I think it's just going to be very important for Andrew Wilkinson to to make it clear. You know, we're going to let, and I think all parties are going to make this part clear, is let's let Dr. Bonnie Henry continue to do the good work she's doing from a public health perspective. I don't think there's going to be disagreement on that. Uh, but where Andrew Wilkinson has an opportunity to, to show a different plan is, is he's going to want to say, like, let's get serious about getting our economy back on track to ensure that we can keep paying for all these services we need. So um, he's going to be talking about, of course, the BC Liberal plan to eliminate PST for the first year, to eliminate small business tax, to provide uh, loan guarantees for the hospitality industry that's really struggling. I mean, we're seeing BC's fifth for unemployment in Canada. Uh, the Greater Vancouver unemployment numbers are huge. They're at over 11 percent. Uh, the Vancouver Board of Trade is reporting that one in four businesses uh, think they may have to close their doors in the next 12 months. These issues are, I, I think, they're absolutely top of mind for voters. And, and Andrew Wilkinson is going to have to say, look, uh, the B.C. Liberals are the only ones proposing that credible, plan, or sorry, that credible plan to get that economy going again. Okay, you need a Campbell for the Greens. I think uh, this is a big one for Sonia First to know tomorrow night, too. Your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think that for the three leaders, it's obviously John Horgan, John Horgan's to lose. But for Andrew Wilkinson, you know, it's not so much uh, to all the good points, I guess, that uh, Caroline is saying. It's it's not so much what he's saying. It's his ability to connect and relate to British Columbians. I think that's a really, it's going to be a big opportunity or, you know, maybe not if he can't do that. But for Sonia, I think it's really for her to be able to differentiate herself uh, but unlike the other two, uh, the big political parties that spend their entire time just opposing one another and showing the polarized politics, is to be able to show how we can come together and work together in the overlapping crises that we are facing. So for her, it's about getting out there, differentiating herself, but showing her plan and how she's going to work with government to accomplish that. Okay, Bill Thielman, I think uh, John Horgan tomorrow night be kind of like the meat and the sandwich here. It'll be sort of two-on-one. He's going to take a lot of attacks. Uh, what has he just got to do, avoid mistakes? Well, I think he got a big break by having Andrew Wilkinson going into this debate also on the defensive. I can't imagine Sonia first to know, and we've already seen some of her comments uh, about the Bowen Ma situation, is going to let Wilkinson off the hook either. 
And, you know, they've made so, I mean, the liberal campaign has kind of been marked by a number of different errors and problems. He's also going to defend the, the $8 billion a year PST cut and how he wouldn't cut any services but would cut taxes. Um, so I, th- I think it'll be interesting. I think Corrigan is going to have a little bit easier time uh, on this one than he might have without those unforced errors, as you called them earlier. But uh, look, this is, uh, this is a very difficult situation for Mr. Wilkinson, to be fair, because uh, this campaign is so short, and we already know now 640,000 voters have uh, taken out mail-in ballots. They're going to be making up their mind if they haven't already. I know people have already voted some time ago. Um, and they, this may be one of the only opportunities for Ed Wilkinson to get a big message across, because you can't do the kind of mainstreeting and door-to-door and uh, big rallies and things that get a lot of attention. Yeah. And they've been off message. So I think, uh, I mean, if I was a liberal strategist like Carolyn, I'd be worried about him uh, over overplaying it and over swinging to the fences with this because he's uh, he's so far behind. Car- Carolyn. Well, I, I don't think Bill's wrong that uh, with the with the mail-in ballot factor and the fact that people are going to be voting earlier, it's not the typical duration of the campaign. So I 100% agree that this is one of Andrew Wilkinson's big opportunities. Uh, but I think where the NDP might go wrong is 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 talking all about what the Liberals are doing wrong and all about how, you know, their their ideas don't work without proposing anything really credible themselves. So I think that's going to be key for them is to say, well, look, we're not, you know, and, and it's true that John Horgan's ahead. So there's a lot less risk for him in that regard. But at the same time, I think voters, and to Sachi's point as well, is they're going to want to hear ideas, not just about what each other is doing wrong. And I think that's where the NDP may well fall flat because the uh, BC Liberals have, have come forward with okay. so many uh, good ideas so far. Guys, thanks a lot for another great panel. I appreciate your time today. Big night tomorrow night with that televised leaders debate. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, all. All right, welcome back to the show. If you love the outdoors in British Columbia, please listen up as we talk about a crucial new report out on BC wildlife habitat preservation funding. I'm an angler. I enjoy getting out fishing when I can, especially with my kids. I've been fishing in BC for a long time. Enjoy it. Uh, I've got lots of friends who are hunters in British Columbia. I support resident hunters in our province. Uh, parks and recreation sites in BC. A lot of people love to get out camping, get outdoors in our province and enjoy our natural beauty. What about the government funding for these crucial parts of uh, British Columbia's outdoor heritage? Going down, according to a new report. Meanwhile, let's talk about some of the struggling populations of game animals in British Columbia, and fish returns, especially threatened sockeye salmon and steelhead stocks. So important in British Columbia, and I think it's been overlooked by a lot of governments over the years. Let's talk about all of that now with my guest, Jesse Zeman. He's a director for Fish and Wildlife Restoration with the BC Wildlife Federation. They represent resident hunters in the province. Jesse, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it a lot. Tell me about your new report. What did you find out? What are some of the highlights? Yeah, so we looked at um, 14 commitments in the 2017 platform uh, from the uh, current government and uh, just tried to track them over time and to see if they met those commitments. And a lot of the commitments around fish and wildlife conservation, uh, salmon farming, BC parks, conservation officer service, grizzly bears, and what we found is that the 14 commitments that were made related to renewable resource management, that only one of those commitments was actually fulfilled. And there were two others that were partially fulfilled. So there's a lot of work to do. Okay, so there's underfunding going on, and maybe that's reflected in, in some of the sad indicators we're seeing out there. Let's talk a little bit about that. Let, let's talk about our threatened salmon stocks, first of all, Jesse. What is the latest on that, especially on the Fraser River sockeye? Yeah, for sure. So th- this year uh, on the Fraser, it's a lower year. So typically this cohort, we'd have around 5 million fish that would return to the Fraser. Um, this year, we had 280,000. So we're talking a few percent of what we should have. Um, it was so low that, that fisheries actually talked about not having their test fishery at the mouth of the Fraser, with the, with, which is what they use to monitor these populations. They're talking about canceling it. And, um, you know, when you have only a few percent come back, uh, you, you need to make sure that you're not killing what, what manages to show up. And what we know with those sockeye is that we've had over 10,000 of them caught and killed and in a number of cases kept in nets on the lower Fraser. And, uh, you know, when you get down to a few percent remaining, you just can't afford to do that. Okay, those, those nets in the river, are those, are those First Nations fisheries, though? Uh, they'll be, yeah, there'll be multiple fisheries. But even on the First Nations um, 
file, there were a number of First Nations openings for Chinook, but there were no openings for sockeye. And so you can have different types of fishing gear that does not catch sockeye, but we had a number of cases where uh, people were actually targeting sockeye on the middle fraser and catching them and keeping them. And uh, in these times when we have such few fish coming back, we just really can't afford to do that. Okay, really troubling. What about uh, steelhead? What's the situation there? I mean, this is like an epic sport fish in our in our province, a sea-run rainbow trout. You know, they get big and, and feisty. They fight like crazy. I mean, it's a, it's the dream of a lot of anglers in our province to go out and catch a steelhead in B.C., but they're struggling too, right? Yeah, yeah. And so the, the steelhead, so the interior fraser steelhead, they go into the Thompson system and the Chilcolin system, and those fish... Uh, you know, we're, we're known all around the world. People would travel from yeah. around the world to come to BC to catch these fish. And they're, they're kind of the Michael Phelps of the fish world. They're strong, <laughs> they're resilient, um, and they're able to, you know, the really neat thing about steelhead is that they're able to come up five years later, and then a lot of them are able to go back out to the ocean and then come back two years later. Um, wow. But in those systems, again, what we're finding is they estimate half of the fish that are returning get caught in a net on the Fraser or out in Johnson Strait, and half of those end up dying. And so we went from five to 6,000 fish returning even, you know, 25, 30 years ago. This year, we had a total of 38 fish in the Chilcotin and maybe 200 and something in the Thompson River. The Chilcotin, that, that breaks my heart. I, I enjoyed fly fishing up there years ago, um, back when I had more time to go fishing. But the, does that include the Dean River? That that doesn't include the Dean, and the Dean okay. is also variable. The northern The northern Steelhead seem to be doing a little bit better, or a lot better in some cases, but definitely our interior Fraser steelhead. You know, we talked about uh, with the federal government listing them under the Species at Risk Act because really there are so few of them we could give each one of them a name um, and still have names left over. Uh, the federal government decided not to list them under the Species at Risk Act, and really in the last three years nothing's been done to, to change the trajectory on those fish, and oh, so okay. I mean they're headed for extinction is, is the reality. Oh man, that is that's heartbreaking. Jesse Zeman is my guest, BC Wildlife Federation. What about hunting? What's the situation with hunting? As I know a lot of guys they like, you know, they like to go out moose hunting or whatever. Those numbers are down too, right? Yeah, so as part of that report, we looked at a whole bunch of the commitments and one of them was around endangered species act. Uh we're all very familiar with the issue around mountain caribou coming in at record lows. Uh, moose are coming, you know, they aren't there yet, but they've certainly seen a tremendous decline and so in the 80s the resident hunter harvest for moose, you know, people who live in British Columbia, they would have gotten about 12 to 13 moose a year. And in uh, 2016, we were down to 5,000 moose a year, and the government said, okay, we've had a huge decline. We've got to get a handle on this. Let's do some research, write a report, and start reversing the trend. Uh, by 2018, the resident hunter harvest had gone all the way down to 4,000. So, you know, okay, so you, you, mean, you mean to say that when it came to the sort of annual allowable, you know, harvest of moose, it used to be 13,000 a year? Yep. And now it's down to 4,000? Yep. Right. Now, why, why is that? Is the moose population dwindling? Yeah, yeah. So moose are yep. headed in the same direction as caribou were, you know, 20 years ago. And so, again, a whole bunch of things that are affecting them. We have salvage logging. We have roads. Um, fire suppression, predation, there's a whole bunch of issues. But the reality is, all around us in these other jurisdictions, they find these problems and they put money into them and they recover these species or they try their best to turn them around. And what we see, what we do, is we talk about how they're declining and how we're going to do something, but we never get to the point of doing something. Right. Okay, what about the park system? Because I know you've commented on the, the situation with our provincial parks. What's happening there? Yeah, there were a number of commitments around that, and uh, there was some hiring that happened in 2016, 2017, um, but overall salaries have declined slightly, um, and uh, anybody who's been out this year knows if you want a campsite in BC, you better be able to get Friday off and go out Thursday night, or you're going to show up on Friday and you aren't going to find a campsite. So we're still lagging behind in the number of campsites. When COVID hit the spring, you know, Dr. Henry said, everybody, especially if you live in the lower mainland, the best thing you can do right now is go outside. It's the best thing for your mental health. And shortly thereafter, we had to shut down all of the provincial parks in the lower mainland and a bunch in the, in the Okanagan because we didn't have enough park, park staff to manage all the people. So, again, we're falling behind on BC parks, on park staff as well. Okay, it's a very grim picture. You don't really seem to hear much about this. We're in the middle of an election campaign right now. I mean, do any of the parties have promises on these files? 
Uh, yeah, so the BC Wildlife Federation, we've asked a number of questions and we've worked with a number of other uh, non-government organizations, environmental and some of the industry, and we've asked them a number of questions and I think they're still getting their platforms together. Um, but I, I expect to see some commitments on this stuff. Um, you know, we're, we're at a point here, you know, even in terms of renewable resource management, we're living in 19, late 1970s, early 1980s levels. Like it's so underfunded. We've gone 40 years basically without changing the budget in any kind of significant capacity. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is Jesse Zeman from the BC Wildlife Federation. We're talking outdoor recreation in British Columbia, camping, hunting, fishing, and the government support or lack thereof uh, for these activities. Phone me on this now. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898 star 9898 on your cell jesse we talked a little bit about some of those very discouraging salmon return numbers on the fraser what do you think can be can be done about that like what is the position of the bc wildlife federation on on this issue and this has been a problem for many years now yeah and so uh, the federal government the government of canada spent millions of dollars on a thing called the cohen commission and justice cohen uh, put forward a whole bunch of recommendations and subsequent to that we've had a number of provincial and federal governments who said that they would commit to implementing the recommendations of the Cohen Commission. And here we are years later without any change. And so we know that fish farms are a problem. We know that in-river habitat is a problem. There's uh, some emerging evidence around pinniped predation. We know that illegal fishing is a problem. Those are all things that are under our control. When we talk about climate change, that's a big move. Uh, globally, and there are things that need to be done, but there are things that we can do on a day-to-day basis that would help take care of this stuff. What would be, um, what would be number one? What would be at the top of your list? Well, both of the both the governments had committed had committed to removing fish farms in the Broughton Archipelago and the Discovery Islands, and uh, we're not even fifty percent of the way there now. And the federal government, its arm DFO, has now said that it's no longer uh, committed to phasing those farms out. So, uh, you know, it's a lot of uh, lot of talk and not a lot of action. Okay, I know, I know there's a lot of jo- jobs there that government's worried about. Um, let, me, let me ask you about the caribou situation. Uh, can you give me your take on that, like with the dwindling caribou, caribou herds there? Who's to blame for that? Uh, well, uh, the, the federal legislation, Species Outer Grace Act, federal legislation, so that's the government of Canada. But provincially, this is an interesting interaction, too, on the fish file. You know, the province, by and large, is responsible for the habitat piece. And so we've had researchers studying caribou since the 70s, and they've been saying, you have to stop destroying their habitat. You have to stop logging. You have to stop driving roads into caribou habitat because they're really sensitive to changes in other species. And so if you want caribou, you need to leave the habitat alone. And even two weeks ago, news came out that in one drainage north of Revelstoke, where we have endangered caribou, we are paying to decommission roads and in the same valley we're pounding a new road into log and so the government says caribou are really important we want to take care of them well you're you know you can't suck and blow at the same time so you can't deactivate a road in one part of a valley and then build another road and put a cup block in the exact same valley that that outcome for caribou is a net loss okay 604-280-9898 is the number star 9898 on yourself peter in a soyuz hiya peter hi um since 1970, in particular, the, the climate, uh, the people who deal with uh, global warming and climate change and all that, they've been saying that we've, we've been losing about 70% or so of all global wildlife and fisheries uh, due to climate change, global warming, overpopulation, etc. You know, I don't know what, what percentage, uh, you know, affects BC in pati- particular, but you know, uh, since World War II, we've been just steadily growing, like doubling global population. So obviously the demand on, on wildlife and food and everything else impacts that. And also, like humans, we can adapt better than animals due to uh, as the climate gets hotter and hotter and wildfires and everything like that. But animals, like they can't take on that kind of stress, like any stress at all. Like, uh, yeah. it, affect, it affects their numbers big time. Let me get Jesse's take on that. Climate change, where does the Wildlife Federation stand on that, Jesse? Yeah, in, ter- in terms of species, especially terrestrial species, there's winners and losers, right? So you're going to have species that are able to adapt to climate change and, and their range is expanding. We're seeing that with white-tailed deer. I um, mean, you're going to see other species that are more sensitive to climate change 
bad. Some of them will move north. And so the effect is there. That's, that's definitely an overarching picture issue that we have to deal with. Um, at the lower levels, you know, we have to stop the day-to-day of salvage logging, of leaving weeds, of driving roads all over the, the province. And we've got 700,000 kilometers of roads in this province. That's habitat that is forever lost for wildlife. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that we can do today that they do in other parts of North America that we're not doing. And so climate change is big. It's a huge issue we need to tackle, but that doesn't forgive us uh, for the day-to-day, uh, what we're doing day-to-day. Sean in Cloverdale on the open line. Hi, Sean. Hey, Sean. Okay, I guess he's not there. Where does your report go from here, Jesse? Uh, so it's been it's been passed on to all of the parties, passed on to the media. In addition to that, we've we've got a group of ENGOs, including industry, uh, a whole bunch of groups that never really used to work together, uh, that have come to the realization that hey, we're cumulatively in trouble. And fish and wildlife and habitat is something that's really important. And so we just released a two-page platform where 25 groups, including the Wilderness Tourism Association, bear viewing, all the way to the guide outfitters to the trappers to CPAWS, to Y to Y, we've all come together and put a two-pager to help push these governments into prioritizing wildlife conservation. And so that's the next step is getting all these groups together that represent, you know, well over 200,000 British Columbians to say, hey, government, you're going to have to do a better job of this. We're all sick and tired of hearing about how you're going to improve this and not doing it, so we're going to hold you to account. Okay, we just got a minute left, Jesse. I mean, some of the issues that you've described have got economic elements to them i mean fish farms employ a lot of people you talked about building roads in the interior for logging i mean obviously there's resource jobs on the line there as well but would you consider like you know in the guide outfitting industry for example whether it's hunting or fishing i mean those are value-added jobs for natural resources aren't they yeah oh yeah no it's not an economic loss i mean this isn't jobs versus the economy uh if we had five million fish show up in the fraser this year there would have been tens of thousands of anglers out spending money on the Fraser every single day. This year, there were no fish, so there's no fishing. And so it's not a jobs versus the economy. It's what kind of jobs do you want? Do you want jobs that are based on sustainable fish and wildlife populations and people who can go access parks, people who can view wildlife? Or do you want jobs that completely, you know, that nuke the landscape? Do you want fences and highways all over the okay. province? Do you want huge wildfires? Those, that's the trade-off that we face. Okay, Jesse, thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Last week on the show, we talked about mandatory face masks to slow the spread of COVID-19. A new study from Simon Fraser University suggests mandatory mask rules have the potential to slow the spread of the virus. Some jurisdictions do have mandatory mask rules here in British Columbia. Masks largely not mandatory, with some notable exceptions, including public transit. Some individual businesses also have their own mask rules. All right, we've had lots of interest in this topic last week, including many people questioning whether masks are really that effective. Let's talk to an expert about it now. Dr. Jing Wang, a clinical instructor at the UBC Faculty of Medicine. Dr. Wang, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, you. thank you. Let's start with some basics here now. Um, can you explain how masks are effective for fighting COVID-19? Because we do get, I, t- I still get calls and I get emails from people wondering if it's really that, they really are that effective. Can you uh, give me your take on it? Yes, masks are very effective because it allows us to um, have more interactions uh, when we cannot physically distance from each other. Uh, it works by two ways. The first is that it spread, uh, stops uh, or decreases the spread of droplets by the infected person by physically preventing the droplets from spreading further than they would otherwise spread. The second is that for a healthy person, it also helps to prevent the droplets from infecting them by preventing the droplets from getting into their uh, their nose and mouth. Right. Okay. That seems to make a lot of sense to me. Now, we have heard some variations in different types of masks, right? Like everyone has heard about the N95 sort of clinical grade mask versus some of the ones that people might be able to pick up cheaply in a a drugstore. Like are the more commonly kind of uh, cheap, uh, widely available masks, are they effective as well? 
Uh, in general, any mask is uh, more effective than no mask. Right. Uh, because if you're even if I think the simulation, the studies uh, that are out there show that even if uh, 60% of the population wear a mask, or even if masks are 60% effective, they're still very effective at uh, slowing down the transmission of the virus just because of the way the mask works and the fact that each mask both prevents the spread and also prevents the person from being infected. So it works uh, both ways. Um, the most important thing to keep in mind that the effectiveness of a mask depends completely on how it's worn. So, for example, uh, with our research, uh, I found that the same level three uh, surgical mask, which is the highest level protection that the surgical mask can offer, um, it performed inferior to a two-layered cotton mask with no filter uh, for somebody who wore it loosely. And this was a medical professional with a beard, and he wore it with the way he typically wore it. And when I tested him, it performed uh, worse than the two cotton, a uh, two-layer cotton mask because the two-layer wow. cotton mask had a better design. Now the same uh, level three surgical mask. When I tested on another person who wore it comfortably but tightly, and he did not have a beard, it actually passed the N95 test. So it was actually as good as an N95 respirator on another person. So that's why um, it's not only about the mask material, but it's also about how the mask is worn. Okay, a lot of people are getting the message on this and they've started wearing masks. I've noticed when I go into a grocery store or whatever, it seems like most people have them on. I certainly have one with me and, and use them when I go into a, a public a public place. Um, but as we know, there are others who feel differently. And we heard from listeners on the show last week who question the effectiveness of the mask. So Dr. Jing Wang, let me let me play some of these calls for you. Here's a caller from last week arguing why we should not wear masks. Have a listen to this. Simply put, they don't work. That's also <laughs> been proven. No, right. you're laughing. But you know what? Yeah, the, science says, the, independent, the independent science shows that a N95 mask has a uh, screens to a 0.3 micron size, and the COVID-19 virus itself is much, much smaller than that. Okay, so he says the masks don't work because the virus is so tiny and the virus gets through anyway. Right, so I have um, uh, two responses to that. The okay. one is that it's already um, published uh, in The Lancet back in June that, uh, like, True et al., um, who are the authors, they published a huge meta-analysis, which is uh, one of the um, types of scientific publications that have a higher degree of evidence because it involves analysis of many studies, not just one study. And it showed that uh, even cloth masks uh, include, uh, you know, on top of surgical masks and N95 masks, they help. And this is uh, analyzing studies from a number of types of respiratory infections um, around the world. So that's number one. Uh, number two is that uh, in terms of looking at the spread of the COVID-19 virus, you have to think that um, we produce, it's spread by droplets, and droplets range in size from the sub-micron size, which are very small, like the gentleman was talking about, the 0.3 micron as a sub-micron particle, to particles that are, you know, thousands of microns in size. And uh, when you look at these respiratory droplets, uh, one 150 micron particle actually corresponds to, like, 6.6 million particles in the sub-micron level, like uh, they compare directly to a 0.8 micron, which means that really the mask uh, is most important um, at filtering the bigger particles. That's where the action is. Right. That's, that's what's important. A sub-micron, like if you get one virus, um, it, you probably will not uh, have a clinical infection. It's really when you have a larger viral load, that's when you... Uh, have a greater chance of getting the infection. So that's why it's more important to block the larger particles in the micron range because they're the ones delivering most of the virus, carrying most of the virus. Okay. Uh, so okay. when you have um, the test, the traditional test that looks at the 0.3 micron range, we actually think that it's too stringent of a test for looking at these respiratory viruses because uh, it's uh, particles that are a little bit bigger in the micron range that are the most important at 
for the transmission of the virus. Okay, okay, that is that is great to know. Let me let me play another call here for you. Now, this caller, and I've heard this before. I get emails like this every day. Uh, masks actually make us sicker if we wear them. Have a listen to this call. I see people wearing them. There's single people in cars wearing them, and it's just I can't believe that they actually do that because they 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 start to mold up inside and they cause further health issues. Okay, have you heard that? That I've I've seen this on the internet as well. That some people argue that wearing a cloth mask will actually make you make you sick because uh, you'll trap bad stuff inside the mask, or you might get carb increased carbon dioxide intake into your body. How do you, how do you respond to that? So that's there are two questions. So the first yeah. one is uh, whether the mask will make you sick because it can become contaminated. Right. Uh, that can be an issue if you're wearing the mask and not washing it day after day. So it's recommended that every day, uh, you know, you should have a few masks with, uh, with you at all times um, in your reservoir of masks. And uh, every day you should, uh, you know, after you use the mask, you should uh, keep it there. And then maybe every week you would launder the mask so that um, every time you're wearing the mask uh, on a daily basis, it, sh- it should be new uh, uh, or newly laundered. And that right. helps to uh, yeah, prevent the accumulation of um, microorganisms um, that can contaminate the mask. The second uh, question is about uh, retaining CO2. So right. most of the studies uh, on CO2 retention is on N95 respirators and surgical masks. And it's shown that if you continuously wear surgical masks and N95 respirators for like four to eight hours at a time, it can cause some uh, side effects like headaches and dizziness um, and some um, symptoms of troubled breathing, even though when they measure the heart rate, the oxygen level, the blood pressure, everything is actually normal. But, you know, the person might feel like it's a bit hard to breathe uh, because they are making a bigger respiratory effort. Um, So that's for, you know, healthcare workers wearing it continuously for 48 hours, and they have some symptoms like lightheadedness, um, headaches, but none of which uh, have um, shown to have long-term side effects. And um, um, now cloth masks are a little bit different because you have some cloth masks that are uh, easier to breathe than surgical masks and N95 respirators because, you know, if it's loosely worn or the material is very um, breathable, then you would have even less effect of CO2 retention compared to the surgical mask and N95 respirator. It's N95 respirator that would have the highest risk for CO2 retention because the material is um, right. the most high, right? Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, but you do but, have some, yes. Yeah, bottom line, Dr. Wang, would, would your recommendation be to wear a face mask if you're out in a public indoor space? For sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah especially... Um, you know, with the winter coming and we cannot spend as much time uh, outside or we can uh, easily physically distance uh, and we're in the same doors more often, it's especially important that we wear a face mask at all times indoors, uh, both to help to uh, prevent infection uh, from uh, being spread and also to prevent okay. infections um, of healthy people. Thank you for your expertise today. Oh, thank you for having me and happy Thanksgiving. All right, let's talk about the amazing story of Takaya the Lone Wolf. Now, a lot of people may have heard about this story. Takaya was a coastal wolf who lived for many years on Discovery Island near Victoria. He met a sad end, unfortunately, but not before his story has spread around the world. A short documentary film has been shown in the United Kingdom, France, Germany, has brought that story to an international audience. And now a brand new book, Takaya, Lone Wolf. It is a hit book, and I'm joined by the publisher now, Cheryl Alexander. She is a wildlife photographer. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Cheryl. Hi there, uh, Mike. Uh, Good morning. And yes, I'm not the publisher. That would be Rocky Mountain Books. I'm the author. You're the author. Okay, good, good. That's great. And I appreciate that. Now, congratulations on the success of the book. This is wonderful. Um, Tell me a little bit about the history of Takaya, can you give the listeners, a lot of people have heard this story, but for listeners who haven't, who was Takaya? Can you tell me a little bit about that? 
Uh, yes, uh, for sure. He was a wolf, a sea wolf, coastal wolf, who appeared on these small group of islands off of Victoria, very close um, to this large city, but uninhabited. Uh, it's an archipelago. And he appeared there in 2012. And for whatever reason, he decided to stay there, uh, which was very unusual for a wolf because there is no um, typical prey uh, that a wolf would eat on this island. Uh, no deer, no ungulates, no small mammals of any kind. So the fact that he chose to stay there was uh, pretty remarkable. Um, he ended up... Uh, learning to eat seal primarily. He hunted uh, marine mammals. He hunted some uh, intertidal fish and goose eggs, and he survived there and lived on those islands for eight years without um, any negative incidents uh, toward people. He learned how to coexist successfully. Yeah, and he became pretty famous there at, at the time. And I remember there's a park there on that island, right? Yes, the island is um, a provincial park, Discovery yeah. Park, and also uh, it's um, the land of the First Nations, the Songhees First Nations, um, yes. a couple of reserve lands on the island. Right, and were there concerns about the wolf? I seem to recall they tried to trap trap the wolf at one point, did they not? Yeah, you know, initially it was kind of interesting at the beginning because when he first arrived there, people were quite shocked. Uh, it was not something that normally would have you would have expected. And so they were concerned because it was um, accessed by the public that there might be um, bad incidents. And also they did not think that he would be able to survive there. So the Conservation Service actually decided to trap him, and they tried twice unsuccessfully. Uh, he was quite clever and really didn't want to be trapped. He also left the island about three months after he initially um, appeared there, and he swam about five nautical miles through this incredibly currented area uh, to Trial Island, which is um, only inhabited by a lighthouse and a lighthouse keeper. But for some reason, he decided uh, not to stay there and or move on, and he actually went back to the islands. And uh -huh. as far as we know, he hadn't left the islands um, since until last January. That, that's amazing. When did you first start following his story, and when did you first photograph him? I uh, knew about his story right from the beginning because it was on the news, but then it kind of went um, quiet and people just didn't pay much attention to him. I ended up seeing him two years after he arrived, which was in 2014. And at that time, I was fascinated by his life and decided um, that it was remarkable enough that it needed to be documented. Very unusual to be able to observe the life of a wo uh, wild lone wolf uh, in the wild. Yeah, no kidding. How, how often were you able to uh, photograph him? Was he difficult to, difficult to find if you were trying to get a picture? Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> Initially, very difficult. Um, I wasn't sure. Well, first of all, I thought he was only on one island, Discovery Island, which is the largest of the group. But then I learned that through observation that he actually swam back and forth between all of the islands in the archipelago on almost a daily basis. So first of all, you never knew which island he was on. And secondly, if he was in the inland, you would never see him. So he had to be somewhere on the coast. And he's extremely camouflage. So gradually I got to understand his patterns and I also got extremely um, good at picking his, his profile or his presence out from, from the landscape. How many pictures of, of him were you able to get over, that, over time? <laughs> I have no idea. Thousands and thousands. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Amazing story. Now it has it has the sad ending though, right? Because he he eventually came over to Vancouver Island, ended up in uh, was it James Bay near Victoria? Yes, it was. Yep. He uh, at the end of January this year he left the islands for some unknown reason. Um, well, not sure whether he did that intentionally or whether he may have gotten swept away in a strong current. Um, but he did end up in downtown Victoria and literally in the heart of downtown in James yes. Bay near the Parliament buildings and the historic Empress Hotel. And he was there for two days uh, before he was captured, tranquilized and captured by the Conservation Service. 
Right, and they transport. They re, uh, re they send him to Port Renfrew, so on, on the island, right? And there, and then he was shot by a hunter, right? Yes, a very sad. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, the conservation service opted to not return him to his islands, which I believe would have been the best uh, course of action. He yeah. was an old wolf. Uh, for for wolves, he was extremely old. And he uh, was relocated to an area near Port Renfrew, which is an area where there are lots of other wolf packs, which is a problem for a, a lone older wolf. Um, they will often um, kill an inter, uh, you know, a wolf that comes into their territory. But also, mm. it was an area where there are lots of hunters. There are people trapping wolves out there, um, and it was not an area where he had the typical prey he would have been used to eating. So, yeah, it was sad. He was. I believe he actually was on his way back to his islands when he was shot by this hunter. Wow, okay, that is really a, a sad ending for sure. Cheryl Alexander is my guest. She is a wildlife photographer, author of the new book, Takaya Lone Wolf. Her photos of Takaya are majestic, just beautiful-looking photographs. This is a hot seller of a book, Cheryl. It's just wonderful. Why do, you th- why do you think this story has touched so many, so many people, not only your book but the documentary film? Uh, I think uh, really it has um, it has touched a chord in people in that they have been given a glimpse into the world of an individual wild animal, a uh, charismatic one, but uh, it, it provides a connection with our wild world that we are missing these days for the most part. So I think people have also been inspired by Takea's resilience, by his strength, his um, adaptability. And right now, boy, we need lots of uh, inspiration because it's a, it's difficult for many people in the world and they, they are in isolation much like Takea was for those eight years. And it has, Takea's life has inspired uh, works of art and a new art festival is coming up, right? Yes, there. Uh, right after the film was aired last year, uh, I began receiving um, spontaneously works of art from people in the UK and in France who were inspired by his life and just wanted to um, either paint or uh, write a song or do something in tribute to him. And that's kept coming in over the last year. And so we've collected and decided to have an international uh, exhibit of the, all the work that has been created. And it's been from many different countries. Countries like Slovenia and Egypt and France and Australia. And so, yeah, wow. it's happening October 24th in Victoria at the Eagle Feather Gallery in Nuka Court. Okay, that's wonderful to hear. We just got a minute left here. When you, when you first started photographing Takea, did you think that this, would, this is a story that would have this type of global reaction for you? Uh, no, I certainly did not. I didn't even imagine I would share any of my photographs. It was really a personal um, journey and personal passion, and it has certainly evolved into something that I had no idea would come out like this uh, with a book that sold out uh, the first print run in the first week of wow. publication. That's amazing. The photographs are beautiful. They're absolutely gorgeous. Where can people get the books? Like the first, the first printing is sold out. Is it still available anywhere? Uh, yes, there will be some bookshops that have it. It's allocated. Uh, it's been allocated fully out. Um, it's available at local bookstores. You can order online through all the standard Amazon chapters, Indigo. Um, so there are some still available, and uh, they are doing another print run as we speak. Oh, that's good to hear. Congratulations on the success with the book, and thanks for coming on to talk about Takea. Yeah, thanks so much. It was uh, wonderful of you had to have me.